today I'm delighted to be interviewing Sophia F. Stathiu, Senior Researcher from the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, Norway, and Arva Hansen, Ulrika Wethel, Johannes Volden, researchers from the Centre for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo, Norway. Together, they have co-authored the editorial for the latest special edition of the Consumption and Society Journal. In this edition, all contributions to the journal are focusing on different areas of scholarship around the subject of meat, and specifically the reduction of our consumption of it as part of a move towards the plantification of our diets. This is a fascinating topic which clearly speaks to all of us as it concerns what we put in our stomachs, which in turn has global ramifications, in particular in relation to climate change. So thank you very much for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to discussing this in more detail. Let's kick off. Um, I understand that this special edition of Consumption in Society was inspired by a project called Mitigation. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that project. So uh, I'm leading this uh, project called Mitigation uh, towards sustainable meat use in Norwegian food practices for climate mitigation. So there's this wordplay with meat in mitigation. <laughs> uh, and it's a four-year research project. It was funded under a climate research uh, call from the Norwegian Research Council. Um, and it is a social science, humanities, and arts project. And our starting point is that food is culture. And so if we are to actually move food practices towards a reduced use of meat, then we would have to engage with, in a way, changing culture and rethinking our food cultures. And so um, this is why we have done social science, uh, humanities, and also arts research, which has been exhibited as part of a the more meat, less meat exhibition <laughs> in uh, Trondheim in 2023, mm -hmm. um, uh, where we also sort of engage broader audiences uh, with this uh, topic. But yeah, another point to say about the project is that we are uh, investigating socially and theoretically uh, three principles for uh, moving towards sustainable meat use, what we call the three R's of sustainable meat use, which would be recognizing the animals and the people who are working to make meat, replacing where possible animal-based proteins with more climate and ethically uh, sustainable alternatives, and then refining how we use meat to reduce waste and uh, loss and malnutrition. Uh, so yes, uh, we have different work packages in this project and uh, Arve is leading the work package which uh, contributed this special issue. So Arve, maybe you want to say more about your work. Yes, thank you, Sofia, and thank you, uh, Rebecca. Well, let me first say that mitigation is one of my absolute favorite projects. It's been so much fun to to work in this um, uh, with uh, well, interdisciplinary work is hard, um, mm -hmm. but but this is, has really worked in this project. And I think a, a, a big group of of fairly young researchers uh, with open minds has contributed to this. Uh, but yeah, I've had a, the pleasure of of leading the work work package called Eating Meat, where our starting point was questions like what are the food related practices contributing to, to meat consumption in Norwegian households? Um, and how are these justified uh, and explained by different actors? Uh, what conditions 
facilitate and, and complicate the reduction of meat consumption in, in the region households and how um, how is meat reduction experienced by, by people has been one of our, our main focus areas. Um, we have, I, I would say, exceptionally rich data material from, from this work package. Uh, again, I think linked to the fact that we really liked working on this uh, project, but we have a, a national representative survey from, from all over Norway. Uh, we have done uh, more than 50 interviews in two, rural, two, two urban and two rural sites in, in uh, across Norway. We have done what I think has been both both the most most interesting and and uh, most kind of unpleasant research methods I've engaged in the stunt focus groups in parks in three public parks where, where Johannes Ilrik and I. Uh, walked around interviewing people having barbecues, basically, which is a big thing wow. in Norwegian parks. <laughs> and then we also had what we call auto photography, where uh, participants would would send us uh, photos uh, of their food practices. Basically, it was quite open. We have a uh, we have a lot of uh, slices of bread um, and many refrigerators. Uh, but 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 all of this combined has has given us. As insight into meat in in Norway, and it's now it has resulted in quite some interest here, uh, op-eds and and presentations outside of uh, academia, but also um, uh, quite some academic articles now. And uh, yeah, the special issue is also an outcome of this, where where we of course also have many authors from outside the project <laughs> contributing. I think it, it is. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's really, and it's fascinating that interdisciplinary um, element and the ability to kind of look at a question, you know, in quite through quite so many different lenses. I suppose in 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 some senses, with with how you've approached it, that's fantastic. And those three R's. Could we do those again? So it was recognizing, recognizing, replacing, and refining. They're inspired by uh, the ethics of actually animal research. Right. So when you're using animals in laboratory science, uh, researchers are encouraged to reduce the number of animals, to replace more with less sentient organisms, and to refine the experimental setup, making it so that it causes less pain and creates more of a pleasant experience for the research animal. So it was my experience personally with working with animal research, making me think, what about ethical guidelines and using animals in farming? So, you know, that was uh, part of the background here. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, brilliant. That's that's great. What I would really like to do now is just if we could go into a bit more detail about this term plantification, which is obviously it's the term that we use in the editorial and we're using in the throughout the, the, the journal. What is plantification? Can can somebody define that for me, please? This is quite a funny story to it because it wasn't actually um, a concept that we started out with. This came to us as part of the process in working with the editorial for this special issue. Mm-hmm. We were playing around with these different concepts and also struggling a bit with how to actually structure the editorial itself. Mm-hmm. And we played around with these concepts of mythification, which um, is uh, Tony Weiss's um, concept about how meat has kind of traveled from the periphery of our diets towards the center to our diets, and then kind of connected concepts to that of mythification demythification and remythification. So we started out thinking around these concepts and how we could structure our editorial around those concepts, but we weren't that happy about them. 
Um, mm. And then I think it was uh, Sophia who came up with uh, with this brilliant uh, idea of plantification. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> were concerned that it was too meat-centric, right? That it was like, okay, meatification, demeatification, defined kind of negatively, you know, still having meat there. Mm. And then re-meatification, uh, uh, which involves basically coming back to meat from a new perspective, like plant-based meats, mm-hmm. uh, but still again, having the concept of meat. And so we thought, how about actually decoupling it from meat and talking about plantification? So many of us have been very inspired by, by Tony Weiss and he's a geographer and his work on, on the meatification of, of diets. But, uh, but one thing that he would also acknowledge um, that this research has also been, been very uh, production centric. So it has focused on, and I've done crucial research on this, on on uh, how production systems have changed and and how they um, and they enable um, the meatification of diets, how they enable all this uh, meat uh, that is accessible and affordable uh, to us, and and everything that is hidden, of course, in these processes. Uh, but there hasn't been that much research directly connected to this on the on the consumption side. So, so so um, that is also something that we would wanted to. Uh, to contribute with and we realized that maybe we need an entirely new term to uh to be able to catch what is what is going on and what um uh, what we are getting out of all this data that, that we're, we're collecting here one of the things that's really brilliant about it is that that, that it's, it's just very current isn't it as well i mean plant-based eating is the thing that people are talking about but am i limiting it by using that term plant-based eating as a uh synonym for plantification yeah so um in a sense, they're very similar terms, but they're also a bit different. So I think just to build on what's been said, um, a key feature with the plantification concept uh, that we're proposing here is this idea that, yeah, we need to refocus our attention um, to plants. But that doesn't uh, mean that plants need to come in the same format as meat. But if we replace beef, for instance, or any kind of meat, really, with minimally processed plants that might actually require rethinking uh, common meal structures, uh, food combinations, and so forth. So to put plants at the center of meals uh, of the food culture might also require these sort of bigger reconfigurations in how we think about um, how we think about food. Um, of course, it could also uh, imply using uh, meat substitutes um, as well, but we really want to sort of re- center the plants here uh, and think of plants as um, uh, as something that is um, um, as a broad category of all kinds of uh, different different foods and how to achieve this plantification of course is a difficult and big question if i may add to that uh, johannes one of the differences between plant-based eating and plantified diets would be that um, a plantified diet doesn't have to exclude meat altogether. So to plantify the diet would be to actually make plants uh, ba- basically regain the, cent- the 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 position they used to have in our meals uh, back when meat was actually a precious material. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, kill an animal that provided you with milk or with cheese or with eggs. These were precious uh, beings and, you know, they would only be consumed uh, in special occasions. So a plantified diet would uh, have that aspiration, shall we say, of rethinking, of course, relationships to animals and um, and be- between humans and animals, but not necessarily uh, becoming completely plant-based 
either. Yes, I think this is, this is a great point, Sipio. I think it's also important to stress that we're, we're not necessarily we're not saying that plantification is 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 neutral or that it's necessarily positive or that it's unproblematic. There there are, for example, a lot of uh, economic interests in in. in, in Strong, very strong, <laughs> and often uh, very strong economic interests that are very often closely related to to the gigantic meat corporations who are interested in the the plantification of diets as well. So it, this is complicated. We think it's a it's it's a lens for 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 understanding um, quite complex processes. Is is now a good time? Could we talk about what what do you mean about the, the those interests? Could you uh, sort of go a little bit further on that for me? Yeah, so um, there have been different approaches to this. Uh, Alexandra Sexton has called it big, big vegan. Um, mm. The the very large economic interest behind um, behind some of these big corporations who are invested in meat replacement, for example. Mm. Um, um, it's yeah, it's 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 quite different from, for example. Um, the the idea of, of veganism as something very alternative to the to the food system um or there there are a lot of different definitions and approaches to veganism of course uh, as well um but it's not like this is not necess- not, not necessarily something alternative to the big corporate food systems that we're living in and, uh, and there are different takes on whether that's a, a good or a bad thing of course but um but we, we see that many of the, the largest meat producers in the world are also among the largest meat replacement product producers in the world. So uh, and, and these are, are getting bigger and the markets are, are, are getting bigger. And uh, um, um, it's still at a, at a fairly early stage for many of these products. And and of course, the future is also very open in, in that sector when it, when it comes to, for example, uh, cultivated meat and uh, um, all forms of of meat re- or replacement of what we now call meat, and of course, the complicated factor that we're also discussing here is that that many of these um, many of these alternative producers or these new producers are calling their plant based products meat, right? So they're calling it plant meats, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is annoying a lot of meat producers out there, uh, but which is also something really interesting to study. What happens when you when we when we challenge the idea of what meat is, does meat have to come from from animals? And we know from from different places in the world that it doesn't necessarily have to come from animals. And the meat as a concept is actually a lot more complicated than what we we think about in our, our everyday life. I've, I have started to hear chefs talk about meat as a uh, almost as a as a flavor or as a um, and and you you often hear um, uh, some fruits uh, e- even outside of this vegan conversation. You, you talk about the the inside of something, uh, the inside of a nut or a fruit as the meat of it, don't you? That's that I think that's a, a, a perhaps an older way of of thinking about these things, which is which is interesting. I'm really interested in this. Um, so, so, some really so some definitions, some interesting definitions going on here about what plantification is and it isn't, because there's an element, as you say, of just replacing plantifying meat, creating meat products um on uh, that are plant-based variants of, of yeah, of animal products. Um and there's a lot of talk about ultra processed food at the moment. And I wonder if those two things aren't aligned. You know, ultra processed food is problematic. And a lot of the processing, as I understand it, that goes into creating like fake lamb, for argument's sake, um, is is also a bit of a challenge here. Definitely. And I think this is a, both a very interesting and very important 
question and challenge for um, the whole process of plantification, really, and an area where also much much more research is needed because we don't fully know how to compare these different types of projects, either in the sense of health or in the sense of sustainability. Mm -hmm. There have been some estimations and, and some research that, that try to or that see that some of these ultra processed plant foods can actually um, come up um, in terms of um, emissions, for example, uh, up against almost um, pork and, uh, and uh, poultry meat, for example. And similarly with um, on the health side. So there, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. um, however, in these conversations, it's often or it seems like it's often assumed that people are replacing the kind of healthiest and cleanest uh, meats with these different types of ultra processed plants. Um, and that's not really the case or it de depends on on of course on country and 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 all of that but we do also have challenges related to very high consumption rates of processed meats mm -hmm. um in fact in a country like norway where a lot of the articles in this special issue um is is uh, discussing almost half of the meat consumed is processed particularly than minced meats and pulse which is a term it's a, this umbrella term that we use uh, to cover all kinds of hot dogs and and sausages um, which is kind of this this uh, epitome of convenience food in norway both pulse and, and minced meats and norwegians eat maybe 100 or the numbers say amount to hundreds of such pulse each annually mm -hmm. um and and I think that a lot of this, uh, a lot of these challenges here relates to a larger societal challenge than either plants or or meat, but the fact that we eat a lot of processed foods, and this is related to, um, of course, that we spend less time cooking. Again, related to changes in the labor market over the last fifty years, uh, we know less about our food, where it comes from, uh, how it's produced, and we also have. Uh, f uh, less or fewer cooking skills and um, the demand for products that require minimal preparation has increased um so it's it's this the question is bigger than 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 just processed plants um versus meat mm -hmm. it is a question of processed foods in society as a as a whole i think and to add to that um this is a bit of speculation i think but often um i think that people might tend to be a bit more skeptical of new and unfamiliar kinds of foods um, than the ones that they're actually used to. So while even though people might eat quite a lot of uh, processed meats uh, in their daily life, salamis and hot dogs and uh, and bacon and these kind of things, um, those might go a bit under the radar, whereas the um, veggie burger uh, might seem very processed to people and they might be skeptical for, for that reason. Um, and many consumers are also skeptical of, of um, soy-based products, for instance, given that um, a lot of soy is produced in unsustainable and, and also unjust ways. Uh, but if livestock are fed soy, far more soy actually uh, goes into uh, meats than the veggie burgers. Just to speak to this point of Johannes about the unfamiliar versus the familiar, um, I just wanted to... Uh, add here something that I thought was uh, an interesting parallel. I wrote about um, meat replacement by analogy to drag. So, and thinking about 
performing gender otherwise, and how these alternative performances of gender in a heteronormative society have been considered as weird, uh, unnatural, or even perverse. And one might think of uh, meat and performing meat uh, in an alternative manner as equally or similarly disquieting and, and unsettling for a carnal normative uh, food culture. So it might it might appear to be unhealthy or unnatural, uh, perhaps because of these attitudes that may shift if once and if we come to consider meat as fluid mm-hmm. or as possible to perform multiply uh, in, in our food culture. It, it it almost feels a bit like a, a, a transition place, doesn't it? Because you know, to move towards a more plantified diet, mm-hmm. perhaps the first thing you need to have is some is a plantified thing that looks like the thing you're most familiar with, and and mm-hmm. and then you can sort of move out from there. Yeah, mm-hmm. fascinating. That's one approach, at least. And this, of course, also enables. Um... Fast food chains, uh, for instance, to uh, sort of offer more plant-based products to consumers. And on the one hand, um, some some might think of that as a form of greenwashing because they're um, an important part part of the meat uh, industry. But um, at the same time, it, it does make it easier for for people to opt for that um, option as well. It helps normalizing and mainstreaming uh, plant-based um, eating. So that's another sort of um, uh, another aspect of this processing uh, issue. In a in another article that's part of mitigation, but not in the special issue. Um, other than myself, we write about the sausage hot dog eating in in Norway, and we see how um, the vegan and vegetarian replacement products they were not really taken up by meat eaters; they were taken up by vegans and vegetarians that could now finally be part of this um, cultural or societally significant Mm -hmm. occasions or events of hot dog and and sausage eating. So in that sense, if the the replacement hot dog is replacing a corn cob or something else that is a natural vegetarian product, then of course that is an issue. Um, if they're kind of carving out more and more space for these replacement projects, so yeah. But it's that important element of that of that need, that cultural need to belong and to be part of the group, isn't it? That's really that's fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And we see that across all the articles in the specialist issue. Actually, mm-hmm. the importance of social conventions, of particular events, of other people's expectations. Um, yeah, and also in order to make transitions or dietary transitions possible the need for this support social support in actually making it happen so definitely i think it's important also to to add that in norway these products are are very new or until it's not many years ago that you had to go to specialty stores or particularly large supermarkets to be able to find any of them Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we are behind other places. I think both the, the UK and the US, for example, have had many of these products much longer than we have. So the first ones came only from Sweden, for example. Now we have more and more Norwegian products. And so to consumers, these are new. They're very new. So, um, uh, But we, we see a lot of interesting things when it comes to uh, to engaging or, or very often not engaging with them. Uh, still, 
according to our survey, less than less than half of the Norwegian population have, have ever tried one, for example, mm. of this, this meat replacement products. Mm. Um, yeah, I think actually something other that that was that has been very interesting in this process uh, and that came up now listening to all of you is <laughs> that um, when working with with international partners in this project. Uh, as we start sort of digging up these meat habits or meaty routines, as we call them, of Norway, uh, we realized that that uh, international collaborators thought that that Norway has an exceptionally high level of meat consumption uh, because meat appears everywhere in what we're what we're doing here, and and people find it so difficult to break out of these uh, of these uh, sort of meaty expectations. Uh, but actually, Norway has a, a lower per capita meat consumption than 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 Europe overall. And I just checked when we're 12 kilos per person uh, uh, below the UK, for example. So Norway still has a very high level of meat consumption, globally speaking. Um, but I think I think what this uncovered is that that um, that we also as researchers or as, as citizens uh, or as just people uh, very often don't think about it. Right. So so for researchers coming from other countries and and seeing this, then experienced it as something uh, beyond the normal, but actually uh, in their own countries, it would be even more intense probably. Yes, one of the things I'm really interested in is the sort of social economic challenges when it comes to uh, challenging and changing meat consumption practices. Um, uh, we talked about there's a lot of people, for example, who haven't even tried these products yet. Um, and I wondered if there isn't a problem in getting the majority of people to move to a non or significantly reduced meat diet because fundamentally it's more expensive. And, and actually, when I say expensive, it almost comes back a bit to Ulrika's point there as well. So there's the financial cost, but also there's that cost of time and, and, and production. So I, I wondered if you'd be able to speak to that. Yeah, I think um, just to tackle the sort of premise of the question first, um, I think it's eating plant-based or eating other things than meat is not fundamentally more expensive, I think, although it very often uh, becomes more expensive, of course, both uh, economically, but also in uh, in terms of the effort that's being put into eating that way. So, of course, many of this kind of staple uh, ingredients in vegetarian cooking, such as um, legumes, um, are very cheap, uh, especially if they're dried, and those kind of things. But because of a combination of different factors, um, it often uh, becomes more expensive in the end. That's true. And I think that this is something that um, our, the research that we've done in Norway really illuminates. So, so a lot of consumers, they lack the skills, the competence, the experience, um, habits, and so on to actually make meals um, from plants, which not only taste good, um, but that actually fulfill the different criteria that people have for food in their daily lives. And this is probably in part because the food culture doesn't revolve around vegetables uh, or plants most of the time. Um, we see that those that have already that already eat mostly plant-based, they've established different routines for cooking, um, a certain repertoire of dishes, uh, knowledge, and these kind of things. Um, knowledge of which ingredients go well together, where to buy them. But those trying to change their um, eating habits, they often end up having to go to new places to get their ing ingredients, um, to buy a lot of new things. And that makes the total cost of food a lot higher, um, both economically and in terms of effort. Plant-based dishes might also have uh, contain more ingredients than if you use uh, meat or a substitute that sits in the middle of the plate again. 
Um, so that's something that um, that we we see. Of course, meat substitute products are often also more expensive um, than meat, and that seems to be a key reason why a lot of consumers that um, would perhaps otherwise be interested don't really uh, bother trying them. Of course, parts uh, a part of why. Uh, meat is relatively affordable um, and alternatives are experienced as quite expensive as um, uh, about uh, political incentives and economic regulations and, and these kind of things as well. I think staying with the social and economic issues, uh, meat is, of course, a highly polarizing issue in, in many places. Um, and Norway is a, is a clear example of that. There are a lot of different strong interests uh, that want us to eat more meat or to eat Norwegian produced meat, of course, um, from the farming and the commercial and the, the policymaker side. And there's quite a strong meat lobby here. And uh, and we experience that as, as researchers as well. Just presenting our research on meat gets a lot of people angry. Um, so it's, it's it's quite an interesting field to to work in. Um, but it's it's polarizing also so, so on the on the politics of it, but also on the, the consumer side of it. Right? So uh, there are clear tendencies along gender, class, uh, rural, urban divides, um, of course, with many exceptions always. Uh, but in, in the in the nationwide survey that we did, uh, more than a third of Norwegians say that they, they eat less meat than before. Um, and 41% say that they are willing to cut back in uh, specific meals. But there are many things to keep in mind as well, because there's a there's a big difference often between what we say and what we do, right? For example, young people tend to be on board with the the idea of of cutting back on on meat, uh, and much more so than than older generations. But research shows that actually here at least young people eat more meat than than older populations. So the, they're they're more. Uh, they're more into the idea of cutting back, but not actually cutting back uh, in many cases. And and one of the many reasons is that we we exclude fish from the the meat category here, uh, and uh, fish consumption is in steady decline here. Uh, uh, and older generations eat a lot more fish than than younger generations, uh, even though there's sushi and and everything. <laughs> um, so it, it's uh, it's complicated. I think it's also interesting to see the kind of of uh, responses that we get, uh, both in our interviews but also in the survey. For example, there is one question asking, uh, "Would you would you like to learn more about plants plant based cooking?" And around forty percent say yes, and around forty percent say no. I don't want to learn more, <laughs> which could be just a sort of kind of protest response. But it, it's it's interesting. I think it speaks to this. We are divided population when it comes to to meat, and there's even though it's complicated and there's a lot of factors here, uh, there's there's no denying that the the typical meat reducer uh, is a relatively young female, highly educated uh, urbanite uh, in in Norway. Mm-hmm. In fact, most likely living in Oslo. <laughs> that is fascinating as a as a profile, and I, and I'm sure it replicates in in in, in other countries in, in a not dissimilar way. Actually, that's really interesting. I wanted to actually add something here on gender and meat, if uh, um, if, if I can, and I guess this connects also to your question about the social challenges with um, with uh, moving towards a more plantified diet. And there has been work within eco-feminist uh, theory and research, and 
um, pioneering work, I guess, in this field from um, from Carol Adams, uh, or I should say that pioneering work in this field from Carol Adams, who has uh, written about how both uh, women and animals get objectified in patriarchal societies and being uh, understood as consumable, whether it's uh, sexually or as food. And uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida has uh, proposed this idea of carnophalogocentrism as characterizing the modern era, this consisting of Carno, Fallo, and Logo <laughs> in, in this concept coming together and reinforcing each other. So the idea of like eating others, consuming others, of phallocentric ideas, masculinist ideas, like virility and power and domination over others, and logocentric ideas priming the, the mind and reason over the body. Um, and feeling. So these kinds of tendencies in the Western, especially intellectual tradition, could be seen as, you know, part of this terrain that's legitimating and celebrating uh, eating other animals and <laughs> and uh, celebrating how we can do that. And we can, we have the ability and the, what would we call it, the capacity, but this sort of we can afford to do that, <laughs> to be at the top of the food chain mm -hmm. in a way. So, so yeah, and to change such perceptions, of course, is a complex process. Yeah, going back to what Arve was talking about with veganism also being, or being associated with uh, ideal, an ideology for change and for revising our perception of humans in the world uh altogether so mm. yes <laughs> it's interesting because i mean you know in, in many senses there's a lot here about what we can do at an individual level but it's really complicated to to you know it's a complex picture isn't it as you say it's it's polarizing mm. and there's an awful lot of uh kind of cultural forces i suppose that that that, that are at work here and i suppose i wonder it sounds like there's some positivity in some of the interviews and the responses you've got. There's a sense that there is a move towards plantification. But I, I wonder what the policy implications are and what are the changes that we need to see implemented, um, perhaps at that uh, perhaps top down level, it, particularly perhaps in the more intensively meat eating and affluent economies. Yeah, I think this is a, a crucial question. <laughs> uh, um, first, from a policy side, first policymakers need to want it, right? <laughs> or I guess we need to elect policymakers who who want it. Um, and in in Norway, again, uh, despite the fact that uh, we we know that it's one of the most effective climate measures we mm. we, uh, we could make, there is little political interest on the national level um, because of the complexity involved and because of of uh, uh, the interest of of uh, Norwegian farming. And so on, and because of, there's there's it's, it's really interesting to see how this is uh, twisted around in many of these discussions, and how it's being presented as uh, the, the part of the the Norwegian culture to eat meat, uh, and that uh, you know it's it's part of our, our 
a, a large and sparsely populated country to have animals roaming. Um, and and yes, a few people are denying that, but the, the fact is that we're eating so much more meat than in the past, right? And there's no need to eat that much meat. So there is this potential win-win-win situation. It could be good for for uh, our health, it's good, it's good for the climate and the environment, and it's, it's, it's good for animal welfare. So it's quite interesting that we just end up in this polarizing kind of meat lover versus vegan kind of discussions always, um, uh, despite the fact that many are, are trying to, to get uh, beyond that. But okay, so but if policymakers are serious of, uh, about cutting back on meat consumption, so as I said, Norwegian policymakers aren't at a, at a national level, um, but some po- some local policymakers maybe. For example, in Oslo municipality, there have been some some efforts. Um, I, I think there are there are two overall issues. Um, the first and the easiest uh, would be to just help the significant proportion of the population who actually wants to eat less meat uh, to to actually succeed in, in, in eating less. There are many different ways of, of, of doing that. Um, but it's, it, that's, it's one of the clearest thing we, 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 things we see from our studies is that there's, there's a lot of interest in it, but people find it, for a variety of reasons, very difficult. There, the, the, the minority that goes vegan and vegetarian is a different category then. Uh, so these are the meat producers, the flexitarians. They are the ones that are they're in between in, uh, and they have to make this choice in, in all kinds of settings all the time. And we are, we are programmed to not make that many, many choices. So it's difficult. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot could be helped, a lot could be gained sorry, just from, from helping this significant proportion of the population. Uh, and the second, probably the most difficult is to, uh, to in- increase the willingness to cut back on meat consumption in a, in a broader set of the of the population. Um, I think in general it has to do with with contributing to to decreasing the centrality of of meat in our food culture. So it's countering the tendencies that we have seen in the past uh, three, four, five decades, um, where where so so meat was meat was played a central role before that, but this has been intensified and, and meat consumption has doubled in many countries. And, uh, and according to some numbers, even tripled in Norway since the 1950s, for example. So yeah, um, there's a lot of, of work to do for those who are interested in doing it, I think. So, I mean, it's about political willingness and then it's about on the back of that, developing some strategies around um, to some extent, I hesitate to use the word changing, but but to some extent sort of transforming or maybe even leveling up national identity as a way of uh, of of enabling people to 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 make this change and to feel that making this change is something they can do in a in a safe way that doesn't um, you know uh, you know damage them. I suppose at some sort of um, level of identity. Yeah, and I, I think so much could be gained, but just by by going back to eating the level of of meat that our grandparents did for example yeah. right it doesn't have to be uh, uh going vegan we just could we could eat like our grandparents like one of our <laughs> one part of our study has, has looked at we're actually doing a book uh, called eat like your grandparents as part of mitigation and that's based on research historical research and social anthropological research on food culture in norway and uh, it's inspired by recipes uh, in the past and and the fact that indeed meat was very precious so it was oftentimes used in meals but 
it would be a very small quantity of meat. And, you know, we would name the dish after meat, but in fact, it would be mostly a vegetable <laughs> dish with a little bit, you know, of uh, meat in it. And so... Uh, and less waste as well, yeah. is my understanding. You'd use more of the animal. We're very wasteful in my understanding. Of That's what... another aspect of how meat and animals were used traditionally. Indeed, we would consume the whole animal. So, I mean, it, it's not wasteful if you're using a little bit of the animal, uh, but the whole animal <laughs> at the time, you know, so so uh, parts of the whole animal. So um that's how uh, it used to be. And meat was preserved, so fresh meat, was considered even disgusting or un unhygienic before refrigeration, of course. So we had ways in, of storing and extending uh, meat uh, temporally and extending it materially by using only a little bit of meat um, in a meal. So, you know, you, we can find inspiration, re-upcycle you know, some of these uh, traditional uh, food uh, practices and knowledge that is in each nation's uh, culture. Heritage, yeah, yeah, brilliant. I think also it's um, to achieve this, it's important to uh, create uh, and enable uh, the right kind of food environments. Mm. So one thing that we've found, which I think is crucial here, is that what makes meat reduction and replacement or substitution difficult for many consumers isn't necessarily the food itself because so many people are now very open to this idea um as Alga uh, pointed to um, but it's tied to all the all this hassle that comes with it which we talked about a bit um earlier uh, all the planning shopping preparing cooking um sort of adapting food to social circumstances and these kind of things and those um uh, might interfere with different aspects of people's lives and, co and come in con into conflict with other things that are um, important to them. So what we've seen a little bit uh, is that a lot of people find it easier to eat plant-based and to cut the meat when some of these factors are taken out of the equation. And that could be in restaurants, it could be in canteens, if they have a sensible, a good plant-based offering. Mm. So I remember one informant that we had um, in our interviews and she was um, a real meat lover and she ate a lot of meat and she wasn't particularly keen on reducing meat, but she was still open to eating the plant-based food in her workplace canteen because it was well prepared um, by the chef and it was made with high quality ingredients. Mm. Um, and in many cases, people actually experience the plant-based offering to be um, quite inferior, quite bad if it's if it's even there. Another example is food boxes and on online grocery um, shopping services and these kind of things um, where uh, sometimes you have really good alternatives um, uh, in, in place. So systems around planning plant-based food and making it convenient for people to actually opt for it, um, those who are open to do so, is, um, it could also help, I think. And uh, the workplace thing, I think, is interesting because, of course, um, that is something that government local government the and it, you know your, your national health services whatever there's that there's a real kind of structure of an awful lot of people that you could get to quite quickly actually and 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 start to make some real headway and that's that's brilliant yeah we also had some uh focus groups with uh, people stakeholders in retail in farming and also in the restaurant sector and once it comes to policy advice uh, we are preparing a policy brief that would 
I mean, it emphasizes three things. That is the pricing of uh, meat and the pricing uh, of alternatives or plant uh, plants and uh, and vegetable farming. Uh, the knowledge that is required uh, to make plant-based food and animal welfare. So there, the, the feedback says that it, these are three key things that we could work on with the pricing, of course, to think about the subsidies that are right now in place, making uh, meat products in some ways artificially cheaper. Mm -hmm. Should we have uh, similar or more subsidies for vegetable farming or what, what kind of policy instruments could be um, used to affect price and um, to encourage people to make the right choice uh, <laughs> by actually making the right choice more affordable? Uh, so second knowledge. So there is a compulsory course in uh, education in, in the school in Norway, maybe also in the UK, I'm not sure, uh, that is around food and teaching techniques for cooking. And there could be a point where we can teach uh, kids and teach people how to make food and recruit people who have the right knowledge, like chefs, to be teaching and inspiring people in these courses. And the third thing is animal welfare um, and um, techniques for either making it visible or transparent, what kind of conditions uh, the animals people are consuming have been raised in and slaughtered in. And, and so in that way, uh, encouraging farmers who are going with free range regenerative uh, farming approaches uh, which right now don't see a, a benefit, I guess, in the market, partly because there's, there's no such mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, or alternatively, uh, <laughs> somehow penalizing farms who are not uh, pursuing such uh, techniques. But we're still thinking, of course, about these three things. And I wanted to name them as possible areas for policy action also uh, internationally. Brilliant. Such a lot there, such a lot there. Um, <laughs> Sophia, Johannes, Ulrika and Ave, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a real pleasure hearing more about this subject and indeed the complexities involved in it as we move uh, towards plantification. To read the editorial we've been discussing today and indeed uh, all the contributions mentioned, simply head over to the Consumption and Society Journal published by Bristol University Press and available online now. <laughs>